Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great Uh, this week our guest is Paul Power. Paul played over 500 games uh, during a 13-year professional career in England. Uh, made his debut for Manchester City as a 21-year-old on Wednesday the 27th of August 1975 uh, and a 1-0 defeat away to Aston Villa. Among his teammates that day were Asa Hartford, Colin Bell, Alan Oakes, Rodney Marsh and Dennis Stewart. And his final league uh, game came on Saturday 7th May 1988 for Everton uh, at Goodison Park. Uh, when they went down 2-1 to Arsenal and uh, alongside him and his team that day were Neville Southall, Graham Sharp, Peter Reid and Trevor Stephen. Paul, thanks for coming along and joining us. It's my pleasure. Yeah, th- thank you for joining us. Um, we- we've picked out a shoot magazine for you today and it's from the 26th of August 1978. So I'll hand over to Tom. So uh, on the front cover we've got uh, Martin O'Neill and Nottingham Forest and Clive Woods of Ipswich Town. Uh, and this is obviously start of the season uh, as free inside, full colour, league ladders and first set of team tabs, a popular partnership uh, with the league ladders. And it says kick off the new season with Britain's brightest soccer magazine. And uh, we've got a Manchester City team group in colour and uh, the cover price is 15 pence. So uh, Paul, when, when you were young, did you buy shoot in the, the likes when you were growing up? Uh, I didn't buy it. I um, but I always read it. You know, there were always uh, shoot magazines around the uh, around the dressing room, or if I was if I was travelling somewhere on the coach or on the on the train, um, you know, then I might I might purchase it to to sort of um, keep keep abreast of what was going on at other clubs and the like. You know, but uh, never never actually ordered it week by week. Right. Was it? Was there any of the magazines that you would have got back then, like a Go or Charles Buckins, Football Monthly, things like that? No, uh, no. I uh, when I was a little bit um, older, when I was coaching, I used to buy Four Four Two magazine, um, but that was more to sort of uh, it was more a, a coaching magazine mm. uh, than it was uh, a, a football story magazine. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And when I was really young, I used to buy uh, the Valiant comic, and uh, and that had lots of uh, uh, football stories in it. You know, like uh, cartoons and and the like. But now, nah, I've I've uh, I've never been an avid reader, to be fair. Even though, you know, I studied law at university, and uh, uh, I think I had my fill of reading um, <laughs> by the time I went to university. To be fair. What about because I I I collect all the magazines and I collect football cards, stickers, books, and things like that. Did you ever collect like say the football cards or stickers, anything like that? No, no, never. I was uh, even even though I played as a kid, I never uh, I never collected them. 
my son did, uh, and he's uh, he's thirty eight now. But he's um, when when he was younger, when when we went away on holiday because we uh, we had a motorhome and um, trying to keep the kids occupied while we're driving down to the south of France was. It was easy for Nicky because we'd just get him uh, a panini sticker book yeah. and uh, a few packs of uh, panini stickers uh, and leave him to it. Like, you know, my, my daughter was a little bit more difficult to keep <laughs> occupied. But, uh, yeah, so we we uh, I was aware of them, you know, and uh, uh, he was he was obviously always trying to get a full album. Yeah. Was it was he trying to get his dad the cards and the stickers <laughs> of his dad as well? Yeah, yeah, he, he used to uh, he, he used to swap about ten of mine for one of Luma Cardia. That's worth it. <laughs> so we we'll go into the magazine then. Uh, so pages two and three, like we're saying, it's the start of a start of a new season. So uh, shoots previewing, uh, looking a wee bit of the season past and previewing the season to come. Uh, and so there's a wee editorial there. The only thing certain in an ever-changing game, uh, it's it's headlined. It just has a wee look at what's what they think's going to what they think's going to happen uh, over the, over the course of the season. And of course, this, this uh, is the season just gone, where uh, Brian Clough's Nottingham Forest has kind of surprised people by winning the, the first division, and uh, Liverpool had won their second European Cup in a row. I think it had City finished, was it third they'd finished that season? Third or fourth, was it? Yeah, fourth the season before, I believe. A couple of seasons before that, we finished runners-up to Liverpool. Mm-hmm. I think we lost uh, we, we lost the league by one point. Right. Tony Buck was the manager then. And, um, you know, we had Bill Taylor, who was, uh, he was an England coach. I think, I think Peter Swales, who was the chairman, wanted Tony Buck as the manager... Uh, because of his association with City and obviously he will have known uh, a lot of the players in the dressing room that you just referred to, Joe Corrigan, Tommy Booth, uh, uh, Glyn Pardo and Alan Oakes, you know, and um, so he was a perfect man uh, for the job, but he probably didn't have the coaching background, um, you know, when he when he initially took over as manager. So um, uh, they decided to bring in Bill Taylor, who... Uh, who was an England regional coach at the time and uh, was a was a real honest footballing man. Uh, all his sessions were really interesting, mm. you know. So uh, so the the combination of the two was a little bit like sort of uh, Malcolm Allison and Joe Mercer, you know, um, from from years gone by. So it was it was a good strong league at, at, at that time. There were a, n- a number of teams that were challenging for the title every every season. And uh, I think just about every team could give you give you a game at that time in the first division, Paul. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's true. Certainly, Forest, Liverpool, uh, Man United. You know, in, in, during that period, they were they'd be up there all the time. And and then of course, um, Spurs were just introducing foreign players, which no doubt we'll come on to uh, yeah. later on. And th- I think they were the first team to probably. Uh, Introduced foreign players to their lineup, and then uh, they were followed later by other clubs, ourselves included. You know, so uh, we'll maybe speak about that later. Just talking about the the Via and Ardelis, it I know that there's a letters page in this where, and I'm sure we'll get to it, Tom. There seems to be a bit of an uproar about bringing in 
two foreign stars, you know, outside, you know, the, the Scotland, England, Wales and Ireland. And you just think how far we've come from, from those days where just two people coming into the league could, could make a big, as I say, a big uproar about things. Definitely true. I mean, I, I look at Manchester City squad now and there's only Phil Foden there, really, who's from uh, the, Man- the greater Manchester area. Right. Um, when I played for City and, uh, you know, you, you'll probably show the, uh, the the team photograph that was taken uh, in 1978 for this magazine. Uh, and I'll, I'll um, point out there that the lads that were local to Manchester... Mm. Um, you know, at, at the time we had, we must have had out of a, out of a squad of uh, twenty players, there would have been uh, fourteen or fifteen that were that were from the the, the Greater Manchester area. You know, uh, whether it was sort of uh, uh, Greater Manchester itself, Oldham, maybe going out down the Eastlands towards uh, towards Liverpool. You know, where you've got the St Helens and that sort. There were uh, there were uh, a lot of local uh, local players in the squad. Mm. I, I love Phil Foden because he actually puts the he, he actually puts the mank in Manchester City <laughs> at the moment, which is important. Yeah. Although the supporters might disagree, <laughs> <laughs> the supporters might disagree that as long as they're having um, you know the success uh, that they're having at the moment, then I don't think the supporters will be bothered whether. Uh, the players are from Argentina, Brazil, or wherever, like you know. Yeah, I mean it's been big changes for City over the last sort of what 12, 12 years or so. Eh? Well, what, what what was your feelings at first when the sort of big money rolled in at Manchester City around about what two thousand and eight or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was uh, I was involved as a coach at the academy then. Right. Uh, Jim Jim Cassell was um, was the head of of the academy at the time. The club had done really well getting players like uh, Sean Wright Phillips through and Joey Barton and you know there were quite a few young players that that uh, that actually came um, into the first team. So we we thought we were doing all right, but you know I think the the vision of the people uh, that were that were taking over was far in excess uh, of perhaps what was being provided at the time there and uh, and. Um, since then, of course, they've uh, they've they've gone on to develop the uh, the youth program extraordinarily. My, my son works for the for the academy now as not as a coach as an administrator, but you know the number of staff. I think probably when I worked there, there, there would have been about fifteen or twenty staff in recruitment and coaching. Mm. Uh, now I think I think the Christmas party this year there were about seventy four. Um, members of staff, you know, so uh, it's unbelievable that there's a, we used to have a, a physiotherapist uh, for the whole of the academy. Now they have, a, they have a physiotherapist for each particular age group. So the under nines have got a, a physiotherapist. They've got a match analyst. So they, they actually watch their games uh, with a match analyst and the coach. And he, you know, they explain after the, after the Sunday games um, where they can improve next week. And so, it's very, very much like um, you know the the sort of situation that they had in uh, Ajax in years gone by when all those great Dutch players came through the system there because they they were actually 
at the club at Ajax from the age of six. And now that is exactly the same situation, um, you know, with academies in England. And players, players can sign now uh, when they're eight years of age. When, when I was playing, you, you had to be 14 before you could actually align yourself uh, to a football club. So the, the whole situation has changed, uh, I think, probably to the detriment of English schools football, mm. you know, which uh, won't be as strong now as it was in my day. I mean, I, act, I actually played for a, a team called St. Anthony's in Withenshaw. Uh, we won the, the uh, Manchester Schools Trophy under 11s. There were 360 teams uh, in the in the competition. When I was coaching at City, we had a young lad who was playing for for Manchester City, who went to St Anthony's at the time. He he played he played in the team that that was the next team after the one that I'd uh, played for uh, to win the Manchester. Tr- uh, the, the Greater Manchester Schools Trophy, and there were 36 teams in it. Mm. So, you know, schools football has, uh, has sort of fallen by the wayside. Mm. But I think the the standard of academy football has uh, uh, has improved dramatically, and certainly the provision for the young players it's uh, it's absolutely fantastic these days. Mm. I've I've always talking about schools football there. I've always thought that certainly in Scotland, when when that finished, because it finished when I was in secondary school, and I remember there was um, teacher strikes and things like that, and it would have been mid mid eighties or something like that, early to mid eighties. And yeah, it, for me, I always think that that's part of the reason why there's been a, there was a decline in Scottish football in terms of the quality. I think the the schools football added a, a competitive edge to football that that wasn't there at other places. And so I, I, I always rue the, the lack of school football. I, I think it was very important. Certainly back then, as you say, there, there's a you know a lot more academies and the quality is a lot better now. But I think for a period of time, not having the school's football was just really was a big a big gap. Yeah, yeah. I always I always remember when I was with Pat Nevin at Everton, and uh, Pat had a little video going. Um, of him actually playing in the in the sort of back, I used to call it a ginnel, but like a, a back alley behind his house, yeah. and he'd uh, he'd keep the ball up against the wall and he'd play it against one wall and then bounce it off another wall and he, you know, he'd have a thousand touches in about uh, half an hour, and no wonder, he, you know, his touch was developed as a young footballer as well. And I think that street football has gone out of uh, the English culture because, you know, there's so much traffic on the roads now. Uh, parents are afraid to let the players, uh, let the let the children uh, play near the road, you know. So, yeah, there are, there are quite a few combinations probably yeah. of the reason. I wouldn't say there's a decline in football because I think I think the quality of academy football now is fantastic. I also think, you know there are a lot of ex-players that are now coaches, and uh, and the young players can draw on their uh, experiences from from their own careers. Whereas schools football, I mean primary school football generally, was um, the, most of the teachers were were women, uh, so there wasn't that much uh, sort of coaching football experience about. Mm. Uh, we were lucky at St Anthony's because we had a 
we had a chap called Des Murphy who was in charge of Manchester Boys at the time, uh, and and he's uh, and another teacher called Paul Bell, and they, you know, they sort of uh, were able to help us and put on coaching sessions that would develop us, but they didn't have that at all the schools, unfortunately. So back into the, the magazine there, just one wee thing I wanted to point out there. So they've got a milestones to look out for in 1978-79. And it, it, it mentions that Manchester City's 28th league game will be their 3,000th. And uh, having looked it up, uh, the Manchester City's 3,000th league game was Saturday 3rd of March 1979 at home to Bolton Wanderers, uh, where Man City won 2-1 with Mick Shannon and Gary Owen scoring the goals and Frank Worthington scored for Bolton. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Bolton had a good team then. You know, they had uh, well, Peter Reid started there before mm. he went before he went to Everton, uh, and they were, you know, Sam Allardyce was uh, was there. They had um, Frank Worthington oh, been there at the time. Yeah, Frank Worthington. Yeah, yeah, Frank Worthington. He just said uh, scored the goal. Yeah, mm. uh, and of course he scored that magnificent goal that was uh, voted goal of the season, where he flicked it over his head and then volleyed it. Uh, from the edge of the box, so yeah, uh, they had uh, they had some really good players, and uh, were well organised uh, as as a group as well. Like you know, so yeah, there were. It's like you say, there were, you know, Ips Ipswich were coming into the yeah. into the four, so clubs were developing all the time, and uh, uh, and it, as you say, you you weren't sure of getting, um, you were never sure of of getting a result. Unlike today, where you would you would back Liverpool, you know, if they were playing at home to win whoever they were playing against, yeah. like you know, so uh, yeah, yeah, it made it a little bit more interesting, perhaps. Right, so uh, Andy, you get anything else you want to say about anything on these two pages? Uh, just uh, about the milestones thing. Just the, the the thing that I took from that was back in the the shoot magazines, there wasn't really a lot about stats and you know, little pieces of information like that. And this is pretty uncommon through the magazines that I've seen that they actually have all this dedicated... I mean, a lot of it's the same sort of, you know, information just for different clubs and different numbers. But, you know, things like that, that's they just wasn't a big thing in the game back then. Whereas now you've got your expected goals and which all that stuff, which I've never even bothered trying to get my head around. Well, uh, when I... When I started playing and coaching, Malcolm Allison was was quite heavily into um, you know statistical analysis of uh, of his own team and the teams that we were playing against. Uh, he'd always he, he'd always write up a report of the opponents. We used to sit on the team coach and read, uh, and then sit with him and he'd talk about. Um, you know, the player that was coming immediately up against me. So if I was playing against Chelsea and I was playing against um, Pat Nevin, then it would be a totally different instruction that I would get uh, than if I was playing against Franz Carr, for instance, at Nottingham Forest, you know. So so he was quite keen on preparing players uh, individually for that sort of, um, you know, for the... For, for the for the coming game, if you like. When I went to Everton, they were much more, that was Howard Kendall and Colin Harvey. And, and this is later, this is 86, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but they they were more concerned about uh, the the unit of the team and the unit of a back four. I'd, I'd never actually been taught 
how to hold the line, when to drop and when to press mm. uh, until I went to Everton and I was 32, 33 then, yeah. you know, so each coach has its, you know, every coach that I worked for helped me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they they all had a different way of doing it, like you know. Yeah. It's amazing to hear that that it, it took to that age, before that part of the game, that you you took it on board and understood about it all. Because you know, obviously nowadays it's it's part and parcel. It's all about tactics and shape and group and things like that. So it, it's absolutely amazing to hear that it wasn't until you went to Everton that it sort of either clicked or it was shown to you, and then. There it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when I was at City, I, I worked with coaches. I just said Bill Taylor and Malcolm Allison. They were they were uh, quality coaches, but they didn't. They they never they worked with us as a back four, but they never uh, worked with us in relation to the midfield. Perhaps like you know, we'd they they do sessions with the with the back four at Everton. Everything was linked, mm -hmm. so. If the player on the ball, the, op the, the if the opponent had time on the ball, then you were ready to drop as a back four because because the player had time to deliver, yeah. uh, and he'd, be, he'd deliver a pass uh, behind the back four. If he did, we had Kevin Ratcliffe there, who was as quick as lightning, who would uh, who would probably sweep things up anyway. And also, they were rarely uh, the opp opposition midfield players rarely had time on the ball because we had Peter Reid and Paul Bracewell who would uh, really press the ball in the middle of the park, get the player's head down so he couldn't lift up and, and, uh, and hit a telling pass that was, you know, was going to uh, break past the back four and maybe put Neville Southall under pressure. So, uh, and we worked on this, that understanding all week, all week. It was, uh, you know, from the, from the Monday morning we would be we would be working on the opponents from the following week, what their strengths and weaknesses were, but more importantly, how we would work together as a team uh, to combat that. You know, so yeah, yeah, fantastic times. So will we move on then, uh, Andy? Over the over the page. So next couple of pages. So we've got a wee uh, ask the expert. There's a few wee, uh, questions in there. Anything you spotted there, Andy? I did, just the, the bit about Graham Taylor there, actually, um, with Watford, and just looking at his, his career was, you know, that spell was. Uh, I think he got from Division Four to Division yeah. Five seasons, and that that's absolutely incredible. I mean, I, I, I I'm a big fan of Graham Taylor. I think it's four four years. I think I don't know if it's today, four years since he's passed. I think. Um, Right. Promoted Division 4 to Division 3, 77, 78, then promoted the next season into Division 2 where they spent another couple of seasons and then promoted into Division 1, season 81, 82. I mean, that's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable record. I know. And and uh, so this year that you're talking about here, they, they just got into the fourth division. Mm. And then I remember playing uh, against Watford uh, for Everton and um, you know they had uh, they had a fantastic team at the time with the, the likes of Luther Blissett and Nigel Callan, John uh, Barnes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, they I can't remember his name now, but they had a, a curly-haired um, right winger who w was always a, a bit of a problem. Like you know, he was uh, he was quite quick, but he'd also come inside. 
and he'd you know he'd cause you cause you problems himself. I can't remember his name now, but I do remember him because you know he'd always co- he'd he'd always cause me problems. Mm-hmm. We see Graham Taylor when I'd finished football and I went working for the PFA and I was in I was in in charge if you like but I was I was a chief administrator of a coaching magazine that we not a magazine a, a thesis that we we'd put together and it was all about um you know youth football youth coaches and uh, I contacted every club in the football league and very rarely got an got an answer from a manager mm. but I went and spoke to to Graham Taylor. He was so hands on with everything that happened in the in the youth the youth at his club, the development of the players at his club. Um, there's another. There was uh, Joe Royal was another one who um, who sort of came and spoke to him with uh, Jim Casella, who, who was his uh, recruitment officer at the time. Uh, and then the the other one was manager at Bournemouth, who's oh, I'm useless at names, but he's um, he's manager of Stoke and Middlesbrough. Oh, Tony Poulis, I'm talking about, and uh, and he was, you know, like really um, uh, ahead of his time as well. And I'm not surprised that the two of them had a full career mm. in football because the football club mattered to them. You know, it wasn't just the first team, which tended to happen with a lot. You know, a lot a lot of managers would say. Listen, I've got enough on my bloody plate here with the with this shambles. Like you know, I said, uh, I don't want to be concerned about uh, you know what the youth team are doing. And then they they'd put me over to the youth team coach, who was generally less experienced, you know. But yeah, he he was a top top man, top uh, top manager. I, th- I mean, within the article, he's talking and he says he's got a five year plan to get them out of Division Two or into Division Two, and it's like yeah, yeah, he he, he did that and more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was his team, all his teams were an exponent of uh of the long ball mm. really. You know, it was uh get the ball forward as early as you can. Uh you know, the two front men had link up together, four four two, full backs would play the ball forward. A little bit like um, you know, the, the, the FA at the time, which was uh which was led by Charles Hughes. You know, he he was an exponent of the Charles Hughes uh, philosophy, if you want. And nowadays, you you know that I, I don't know I don't know what the um, the coaching qualifications involve in the present day, but I would be amazed if it was anything like direct football. You know, what, what I see on the television now is a compact game, playing the ball into midfield, uh, slower build up, uh, more more possession of the ball you know um, but in his day that worked for his team so uh, so uh, uh, all praise to him for that just on the ask the expert questions tom the, the one the one that caught my eye was the one burrow and it's from michael moore and charlie he says i'm a very keen middlesbrough supporter and would like to know how long the club has been in existence I just love the fact that back then, you know, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't this information to hand. Somebody who followed the club, obviously he's over there, I mean, Charlie's over in Lancashire, that's near Bolton, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. But to have to write into a magazine and ask when the club was formed, because that information just wasn't freely available, it just shows you, again, nowadays, 
you go into Google, you type it in, and there it is straight away. Whereas you, you write in, hope to get a response, and then hope that you don't miss it in the magazine. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, I meet people now, and and uh, you know they they sort of uh, quite surprised when I say I used to play professional football. Straight away, they're on Google, Paul Power, mm -hmm. and uh, and there's a picture of me in city kit or whatever. You know, you've got instant access now yeah, to yeah. all sorts. Yeah, they could probably tell you your, your career back in about half an hour. <laughs> Usually do. <laughs> uh, so on the page opposite there, we've got an advert for uh, Simlam football boots. I have to say, I have no recollection of Simlam uh, football boots. Did you have a boot deal when you were playing, Paul? I did, yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't worth a fortune. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't an international player. Mm. I actually got one England B cap when... Uh, we played against Spain. We got beat three one. So that was the end of my, of the end of my England B career uh, straight away. But no, I I used to wear Adidas boots, always always black boots. I never wore you know the coloured boots weren't pre uh, sort of prevalent then. But the clubs would generally say you wear black boots. You know if uh, Tony Buck was manager of mm -hmm. Manchester City, he wouldn't have had any Alan Ball white boots uh, on the football pitch like you know unless. You know, they paid a lot of money for a player. If Trevor Francis wanted to wear orange boots, then, you know, he'd, he'd have been able to do what he wanted. So, uh, but as as local players, myself, Kenny Clements, uh, Jed Keegan, uh, Gary Owen, Ray Ransom, people like that, uh, the club would provide the boots um, and then you wore them. And then is, we, I used to get about 300 quid a year for wearing the boots and then, if we got to an, uh, an FA Cup final, uh, then obviously there was always a bonus. But but what what impressed me more was just because I wore Adidas boots, I could go down uh, to the Adidas factory at uh, at Stockport, mm. and uh, they had they had what they what we called Santa's Grotto, and it had all the up to date stuff. And at the end of the season, I could go and choose all uh, t shirts and tracksuits and stuff for my holidays so that was worth that was worth more than the 300 quid i used to get for wearing the boots like you know i tell you there's yeah. collectors of that sort of stuff that would be frothing at the mouth at the prospect <laughs> of that these days yeah yeah so so the with the boots i'm, I'm guessing how, how many sort of how many pairs would you get a season would you would you would you wear new ones for a cup final or would you be more be a case of wearing ones that you'd worn in before oh yeah absolutely i'd, ne I'd never wear uh, uh, a pair of new boots we used to have um, apprentices at the club who cleaned you know they'd clean certain number of players boots so they'd say they'd say there were eight eight or nine apprentices they'd be responsible for uh maybe five or six pairs of uh, boots of the pros and the and the reserves you know they they had to make sure that uh, everything was sparkling, ready for the for the game, and uh, what we used to do was ask the well, as long as he was uh, the same shoe size or, or almost the same shoe size. I remember I used to. Do you remember Earl Barrett? Mm -hmm. Earl Barrett used to play. Uh, he started off at City, and then I think he went to uh, Aston Villa. Earl Earl was my apprentice, if you like, and uh, he would wear the boots in training in his training sessions and sort of wear them in for me so they were a little bit softer when uh, 
uh, when I got, I don't know whether that happens now, but it always did. Apprentices weren't even allowed in the first team dressing room when, uh, when I was a pro because they had to knock on the door before they were, uh, before they were allowed in, you know, so uh, the first team ruled, uh, ruled the roost downstairs sort of right. thing. So we go over the page and Andy Bank shooter uh, previewing the previewing the season, uh, and they say our title favourites: Liverpool, Man City, Nottingham Forest, and Everton. Uh, and just to have a wee look then at what shoot said about Manchester Manchester City, uh, they've promised so much in the past two or three seasons, uh, and as we spoke about earlier on, uh, so City were runners up in seventy seven and fourth in seventy eight, yet for one reason or another have failed to land the title. Tony Book has been spending even more money this summer and City do indeed have a powerful looking squad, strong in all three departments. They have youth, experience, depth and skill. We tipped City last year and a lot of people will make City their choice this season. Yeah, it didn't quite turn out that way, did it? City finished 15th that season, 78-79 and Liverpool won the league in 68 points, eight ahead of Nottingham Forest. Yeah, yeah. It was um, disappointing having... Having um, done ever so well, you know, when uh, uh, when we finished runners up to Liverpool and then uh, and then fourth that that season, I think everybody was expecting, um, you know, the, for us to take it on and to improve. But mm. it didn't work out that way, and I I don't know why because the players that we had, I mean, we had uh, internationals certainly down the spine of the team. Mm. Um, you know, we had Joe Corrigan in goal, and then. Dave Watson, uh, the 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 old Dave Watson, if you like. Not you the played with both Dave. of them, don't you? Both Dave Watsons. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both uh, tremendous players as well. If if I if I believe what I am to believe, reading the Daily Mail at the moment and uh, all about head injuries and um, Alzheimer's disease for for players, then those two Dave Watsons are bound to have it. I've got to say because. They used to love heading the ball. You know, uh, the Dave Watson at Everton, uh, at the end of the... We used to have a, a, a light training session on a Friday, but Dave would go and uh, head about uh, 20 balls just to get the timing right for the for the day after, the day of the game. You know, and um, although the balls were lighter then than when uh, Jeff Astle, for instance, yeah. uh, was heading them, uh, they were, you know, it was still sort of launching balls from 40 and 50 yards away to head them as far away as you could. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised there are, uh, there are problems with the, the present, the, my generation and certainly the generation before, you know, so Billy McNeil, um, I know, I know he suffered with dementia and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not at all surprised because the ball at the end of the game, it might have weighed the same at the beginning of the game, because I think, the stipulation is it's got to weigh about 14 ounces or something. But right. in the old days, at the end of the game, it didn't weigh 14 mm. ounces. It weighed about 14 pounds, I reckon. And just you mentioned Billy McNeil there. Obviously, you worked with, me, with Billy at Manchester City. Um, I, I don't think... I think it was, it was Billy who was the manager when you left City. Is that right? He was. He was. But I, um, but I was there for about probably four seasons. In fact... In fact, we just got relegated. Uh, if you remember the Luton game when David Pleat oh, was dancing, the yeah. so we we got we got relegated, uh, and then Billy McNeil came in the close season. Right, uh, we got promoted straight away. Although we didn't finish 
directly in the promotion places. Uh, but we 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 um, we managed to get promotion straight away, and then yeah, he was he was what you I mean he, you could see that he worked under Jock Steen, you know, and um, and I think he was a typical his attitude towards players was that like Jock Steen, you know, it was the club was most important. Mm. You do as I say, you know, he was very much. Uh, like a Samat Busby or a typical Scottish manager, you might say, although, you know, that's being a bit racist, but <laughs> at, at, at the time, uh, that's how he was, you know, and he, if he if he wasn't happy with you, he'd he'd, uh, he'd definitely let you know. Just while we're talking about Jock Steen there, so that the talk about Leeds United, and at this point, it says their managerial problems can't have helped preparations for the new season. So I think the week before this magazine came out, or probably actually when the magazine came out, that's when Jock Steen was appointed as manager of Leeds, which I think mm-hmm. 40 days, another 40. 40, 44 days. It was coincidentally the exact same length of time Brian Clough was at Leeds United. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for the, for the, the Scotland, Scotland job came up. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's sliding doors, isn't it? Just if that Scotland job hadn't come up, you can only guess what Jock Steen might have done with a team down in the English English League, League United. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, uh, I don't know whether there was, um, because they'd had so much success at uh, Leeds as a group of players, and uh, some of them at that stage were coming towards the end of the careers, uh, maybe Paul Maidley and Billy Bremner and uh, Norman Hunter, you know, the... But they possibly weren't able to uh, to accept the fact that that was, and they and they mm. wouldn't accept change. Mm. You know, they'd uh, they'd achieved uh, so much together. I think when when somebody came in who was a bit of a foreigner, they made it difficult for uh, for him. And of course, they'd have the support of the supporters. They'd have the the backing of the supporters, I should say. Mm. So it was it was always likely to be a difficult uh, job for. You know, any any new manager to take over that group of players, I would imagine. I, and that's just my feeling, by the way. I don't know. All right, so it shoots verdicts on who was going to win the, the title there. Uh, again, they say Everton, Liverpool, Man City, Forest, and possibly Arsenal are the contenders. But uh, ultimately, they, they plump for uh, Liverpool uh, as, as their title winners. And of course, Liverpool did go on to win the title that season. So yeah, things we want to see there about uh, some of the some of the teams or some of the players on those on those pages there. Well, you know, I mean, it's always interesting to talk about uh, the Liverpool team. You know, they were they were the top they were the top dogs. I mean, Russian Dalglish. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I just mentioned that we we had a, a solid spine of the team, an international spine. Well, so did they. Yeah. You know, I mean, they. Uh, they had Ray Clements in goal, who kept Joe Corrigan out of the international team for, for, for quite a long time. They had Graham Souness in the middle of the park, who, you know, could make things happen and he could stop things happening as well. Um, from my point of view, playing wide on the left, Jimmy Case was one of the most difficult opponents that I ever played against. Not, you know, he was he's just physically a hard man, you know. <laughs> And I knew that if the ball was in the air between the two of us, that uh, I was going to get an arm or an elbow or something uh, just to remind me that uh, I was playing against him. Like, and then if I managed to get past him, then it, like in the early days, it would be Tommy Smith that you had to deal with. And then 
uh, after him, Phil Neal, like, you know, who was no angel himself, by the way, so, uh, and an England uh, international fullback for years. Mm. So they had, uh, they had strength all over the park and, um, you know, the likes of Ray Kennedy and yeah. uh, they, they had uh, uh, players that were contributing goals from all over the place. I remember we might even you might even talk about Paul Futcher, who we bought from uh, we bought from Luton. Futcher was a little bit like John Stones now, you know. He was a footballing centre half, pinged a great ball uh, out wide to the wide players, good enough in the air, you know. But he fancied himself on the ball too much, and when he come up against somebody like Kenny Dalglish. And uh, Ian Rush, they would just turn away when it, when the goalkeeper gave him the ball, or the fullback had given the ball. They'd sort of turn away as if they were not interested. Let him have a touch, and then they'd be straight in on him. And uh, the number of times he'd get dispossessed, which is, you know, you could imagine Liverpool doing their homework mm-hmm. and saying to those two before the game, you know, this is you can take advantage of somebody's overconfidence here mm-hmm. on the ball, you know. Um, and then you soon you soon learn from your mistakes. Paul Futch was a was a good player, uh, but a better player when he'd been playing in the Premiership. Like you know, yeah. Hey, what, what, sorry, Tom, what, what you said there about Liverpool? Because we we had David Fairclough on um, one of the previous podcasts, and there was an article with Kevin Keegan, and he was talking about exactly that thing where they would they would pick out the the weaknesses in the opponents, and and basically you know, go for the throat on them, you know, put pressure on them if if they weren't comfortable on the ball and things like that. So that that definitely went on with Liverpool at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I played for, for Man City for about 13 years. Um, when I went to Everton, I was in the Everton team that played against Manchester City at, uh, uh, at Main Road. And before the game, uh, Graham Sharp said to uh, Adrian Heath, he said, you know what happens here, don't you? So straight away, me, I'm thinking, well, I, bloody, I was there for like 10 years and, I, you know, I'm interested to know what you're going to say. So Sharpie said, I'll just take Mick McCarthy out of the way and you just get in the hole, you know. And I'm thinking, I never knew teams thought that about Man City, <laughs> you know. Um, but, it, yeah, absolutely. When Players work each other out and... Uh, uh, and the you know the longer they play against each other, they they'll sort of understand each uh, everybody's weaknesses basically. Mm. Um, so it, it's quite it's quite interesting to see when you go into a different dressing room what they think uh, of the team you used to play for, like you know. And was that how you get your you get your goal that day for Everton against Manchester City because Graham Sharp had pulled Mike McCarthy out there? <laughs> uh, no, I think uh, it was because. If if I'd have been in goal, I'd have saved my shot. But Perry <laughs> Suckling was, I think it was Perry Suckling who was in goal. I might, uh, I might be wrong, but uh, the goalkeeper should have done better, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it was just just one of those things because City was struggling that year, mm. and uh, of course Everton were going for the for the championship, which we which we did eventually win that year, and. I couldn't. I couldn't celebrate scoring against Man City at Main Road, like you know. Yeah. Uh, it just wasn't. It just wasn't the done thing. And did Howard Kendall pull you up about that in the dressing room afterwards? 
No, 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 no. I think he, I think he would have understood, like you know, because a lot of those lads that played for Man City that day, Kenny Clements, my best, mess, my best mate in football, we roomed together for God knows how many years at City. Uh, Neil McNabb, um, a tremendous friend and player, you know, uh, people like Andy May and others that had come up uh, through the ranks while while I was playing at City. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to sort of run around yeah, and rub yeah. their nose in it sort of thing because they were still friends, yeah. you know what I mean? So, and Howard would have understood that because he'd have, uh, because he just he, he just was a great manager who understood people. Yeah. All right, so there's a, we're looking there at, there's a How They Finish in 1977-78 where a shoot list uh, all the, the league tables and uh, the, the ups and downs of who was promoted, who was relegated, uh, etc. I don't know if there's anything to pick out uh, there. Andy, have you seen anything from that wee list? Oh, just, um, Tom, Tom and I are both Clyde Bank supporters. And if you look at the Scottish Premier Division, we finished rock bottom. Yep. That one. So we got we got relegated that season. But listen, for, for a team like Clyde Bank, even to be in the Premier League was, you know, that, that was getting there and being there for the season. We did it a few times. Yeah. Was, was, was more than enough. Well, it's funny because you you mentioned. I think I think uh, Neil McNabb played for Morton yeah. originally, and then Gordon Smith, Derek Parlane. Uh, we had a a lad called uh, Dalziel. Dal- Gordon Gordon Dale. Gordon Dale, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Jim Tolmy. Mm. Lots of good Scottish players when uh, when Billy McNeil took yeah. over at Man City because obviously he knew he knew the the Scottish scene. Uh, and he had Gordon Smith and Derek Parlane who came down, who were who were Rangers people, like you know. And uh, and uh, Billy McNeil was the biggest blinking uh, Catholic you could ever imagine. He, he used to say to me when he was when he was in charge of uh, Celtic, if there were two fourteen-year-olds and one was a Catholic and one was a was a Protestant, he signed the Protestant because he knew that Rangers wouldn't sign the Catholic, like, you know. So all that sort of thing. We. We just didn't understand yeah. that, uh, you know, uh, south of the border, uh, the sort of things that went on. And the, the, the Scottish lads used to take advantage of it, you know, and they, they were Mickey takers a little bit. So, you know, they'd, uh, they'd, start, they'd start teaching us uh, the words of the sash, you know. So we'd be, <laughs> we'd be on, the, on the coach going to the game. And uh, for it was old and it was beauty. And Billy McNeil's at the bottom. I'm a Catholic. And he'd come steaming down. And Mick McCarthy, who's a Catholic as well, we're joining this, what we thought was a Scottish folk song. <laughs> like, you know? And then Billy McNeil had come steaming down the bus and, uh, and give us a bollocking for, uh, uh, for joining in. And then I'd, I'd look at Gordon Smith and he'd be sort of uh, having, a little, having a little chuckle in the background, like, you know. But, uh, yeah, it was all good fun, all good fun. And I know... Paul Gascoigne when he went, but you know, somebody had put him up to playing the flute, yeah. and uh, you know, it's just uh, you you understand a lot more now than than you did in the time. As you, as you say, if if you don't know about these things, then if you know, if somebody tells you to do something or asks you to do something, you're you're not always going to do it without questioning, but quite often you are. So you can't really be held to account for that. I don't think. No, no, and and you know. If, uh, Politics and football really don't mix, but you know, on occasion you get you get caught out, 
because you've been a little bit uh, politically naive. Mm. I mean, in 1981, I, I uh, uh, 8081, when we got to the FA Cup final with Man City against Spurs, I was voted Player of the Year, the Belfast Player of the Year, and um, the the Saturday before I went over to Belfast, uh, I was actually presented by the the, the Sun newspaper a cheque for £1,000 to give to a charity of my choice. We were, in 1981, after the cup final, I was due to get married. So the priest who was going to marry me was a City fan, but he was also uh, quite high up with Cathod, like Catholic Overseas Development. And so I presented this cheque to this uh, Catholic priest. Oh, my God, when I went to receive the, uh, the Player of the Year Award in Belfast... <laughs> I was like, half the room were pleased with me and the other half were giving me symbols to wear, like the red hand of Ulster, put it in me, put it in my lapel, didn't know what it meant or anything. Then the other, someone else come up, what are you doing wearing that in your lapel? You know, and I, I just didn't have a clue. They, they took me to the cleaners, I've got to say. <laughs> good fun, good fun. But I guess, the, you know, again, looking at the Premier League, Celtics finished there, fifth. In the table, 36 points. Rangers and Aberdeen, Dundee United and Hibs all above them. Um, and I guess that was Billy McNeil's last season as well, before he moved to... Was that... Or was it? Yeah. Uh, no, it would have been. It might have been. Uh, although, no, 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 we didn't get relegated. He, he came the season that City got relegated, which uh, might have been the year after. Right. But he, he was definitely there round about... Um, um, late seventies, late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, uh, because that's when we were in the old second division. Right, and then and then John Bond came, um, round about nineteen eighty. Right. Uh, yeah, Billy McNeil was there a couple of years, and then he went to Aston Villa after after uh, after he left City, and both City and Aston Villa went down that year. Same season. Uh, yeah. Uh, as I remember, but it wouldn't be down to him. I yeah, mean, I, I think I just lost my bearings there because obviously Jock Steen would have been the manager and then he went to yeah. Leeds and then to Scotland. So I think would Billy and McNeil have been Aberdeen manager at that point? Yeah, he may have been my Aberdeen yeah, manager. He, then, yeah. yeah, yeah, he did. I'm sure. Uh, no, no. Did he Did he go to Celtic after Aberdeen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I'm pretty sure he was Celtic manager, uh, you know, at, at the time. So... If judging by the table there, if they were struggling, they might have thought, you know, there's a there's a need for a change. But he was an absolute god around Celtic Park. Yeah. You know, he was uh, he, even even the Rangers lads in in the team, uh, the Derek Parr Lanes and and Gordon Smith and that they they were, you know, uh, they used to call it. They used to refer to him as Caesar. Mm -hmm. You know, he was because his chest was out and he was a uh, he was a big powerful opinionated man like you know so uh yeah 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 it would have been difficult for him to for him to leave celtic i think i think it's fair to say billy mcneil is one of these players that crosses the divide and crosses all team you know supporters respect him yeah 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 i'd, I'd agree with that all right, we turn the page then and look at the uh the letters the letters page so uh, goal lines is the letters page and uh, just something that we, we touched on earlier on, Paul, there. So that, that first first letter, the star letter from Brian McGovern of Dublin, uh, why the fuss? 
What's all the fuss about players from Argentina and the English League? For many years, English clubs have signed countless players from Scotland, Wales and Ireland with no limit in the number. There hasn't been a, a murmur from the English authorities. When Arsenal played last season, there were seven non-English players in the team at times. So when a limit of two is put on continental players and considering the best English players make the grade whatever, I find the protest quite amazing. So like we were saying earlier on, this is the season that Tottenham have brought uh, Ozzy Ardilis and uh, Ricky Villa uh, over from, from, uh, from Argentina. And uh, obviously there's a wee bit of, like we, were, like we were saying, people kicking up a wee bit of fuss and the foreigners are starting to creep into the, the English game. But uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, like, like I said, Ips, Ipswich had uh, Franz Tyson and Arno Mjorin from, uh, from Holland. Then later, uh, when, in fact, when, when Malcolm Allison uh, took over at Man City, he brought Kazudena, yeah. who was a, an unbelievably talented player, but wouldn't get in any team at the moment because he's just not not prepared to work hard. Right. You know, I think Kazi went when Kazi came to City he was probably about uh, thirty two uh, at the end of his career. Still a magnificent player. He he he. I, I was playing at fullback then when Kazi played in front of me as a, a central midfield player, and uh, he used to come and show for the ball, mm-hmm. and then I would. I wouldn't give it him because he'd be tightly marked. So I'd drop it into the front man and then Kazi was expected to turn round and go and support the, the, the long ball to the front man, like, you know. And of course, that wasn't his... He wanted the ball to his feet. Yeah. And he, he just said to me uh, after one game, hey, I come, I come for the ball, you give me the ball. He, he said, if there's a man on my left, you give the ball to my right. If there's a man on my right, give it to my left. If there's a man marking me tight, give it me hard and I'll give it you back. If there's nobody behind me, give it me soft and I'll turn. Mm. And I'm thinking that was a coaching lesson for me mm. in one sentence, you know, from a, from a, a massively experienced uh, uh, continental player. No coach had ever sort of said that to me, mm. how you should give the ball to players that are receiving it, you know. So uh, he'd, he'd have probably got frustrated by having ordinary players around him. Uh, and I, I think a lot of these foreign players brought a lot to the English game, you know, uh, a lot of the understanding of different positions. Like So they, they were definitely... I mean, we had uh, a, a player called Dragislav Stabanovic at, uh, at Man City. Yeah. We call him Steppy, a Yugoslav. Went on to be manager of um, Bayer Leverkusen in, in Germany. And I'm not surprised because... He was a, a total professional player. You know, he, he, he would have been steeped in football and he learned English. He, he came over. I went, I went round to his house. He lived in uh, uh, a borough of, uh, of Manchester called Sale. Went, he had, uh, he had the, the English newspapers on, uh, pinned on a board in his, in his kitchen and words underlined that he didn't understand. Mm. And then he'd get the dictionary out and he'd learn. Kazu Dana came, he was 32, he wasn't going to learn English. In fact, I roomed with him and I ended up speaking more Polish than he spoke English in the end, you know. But, um, but that's the difference between the two types. Kazu didn't go on, he should have, with, with his experience as a player, he should have gone in, into management, but he never did. And he ended up tragically losing his life uh, exactly. in a car that's accident thing, yeah. in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you, you come across all different types of characters, personalities, 
you know, when, when you've been involved in the game uh, sort of a long time. So uh, there's, a, there's a, a nice little uh, uh, letter there uh, about, uh, about Ray Clements. Uh, obviously, Ray Clements has just passed uh, away uh, recently. But Christopher McAvoy of Gorey writes, I would like to take this opportunity to thank Ray Clements for all the warmth and kindness he showed on his recent holiday in Southern Ireland. He signed literally hundreds of autographs and even took time off to visit the local football team. Considering he was on holiday, I feel he was remarkably kind to work so hard. Absolutely. I mean, we used to, at City, they, they used, on a, on a Friday after training, they used to have like three tables full of memorabilia that supporters had sent in, whether it was a football, a birthday card, whatever. And we'd work down from one end of the table and everybody, the whole squad, were expected to sign. Mm-hmm. You know, now I think players will only do it if they get paid a certain amount of money. You know what I mean? So... But players were revered, revered in our day, much the same as they are now. But I think because in those days it was a working class uh, game, it's not anymore, mm. uh, you know, with the introduction of all, all sorts of executive boxes and everything, you know, they, it's not a working class game uh, particularly anymore. Mm. But, you know, in, in days gone by it was, and I think, the players that were playing were from working class backgrounds and understood what it meant to supporters, you know, to receive an autograph because mm. they'd probably been in a, a similar situation when they were younger as well. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. And, but there would still be one or two senior pros that were a, a little bit aloof, you know, that if somebody came up to them and asked them for an autograph, they'd say, excuse me, I'm out with my teammates uh, and I don't want to be disturbed. I won't sign that. You know, um, but the good ones would always sign. It, it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, this is something we've touched on quite a few times, Tom, isn't it? You, you see, you see professionals nowadays with their headphones walking past a group of young lads wanting an autograph or something, and they just ignore them. And you think that's that's not right. And the thing I always come back to is, it can make or break good or great memories or bad memories of a player as you say if, if somebody turns around and says can you sign this and they say no I'll beat it or um, I don't have time then that's a memory for life for that person just for that two or three seconds to actually do the autograph whereas if they take the time out say okay who's it to or there you go there you go son that's a memory a good memory it's been made for life and you know I think I, I get that not everybody not everybody's always going to be in the frame of mind to to do the right, you know to do it right, yeah yeah. Perhaps if you've lost and you or you've not played particularly well, you might be a bit down and yeah. But but that's no excuse either, you know, because uh, you can make somebody's day by by just uh, you know acting respectfully. Really, yeah. yeah. I think even if you know if you're in a bad mood, if somebody wants an autograph. You, even if you just take it off, you don't say anything, sign it. That's still made their day. You know, yeah, yeah. I've got a story for it. I don't know. Do you remember uh, Fred Air? He, he, uh, Fred Air actually uh, is a bit. You know, he does a lot on radio, but he was manager of Stockport County. He also started his career at Manchester City. He had a good career in football, uh, and he's written a couple of books. Where one was called A Breath of Fred Air, <laughs> and he's got a son called Stephen, and is. Uh, his son wrote to me uh, when I was playing for Man City because uh, he was a City fan. And uh, the teacher at the school had said, uh, I want you to write to your hero 
and see if uh, you get a reply like so he'd written to me as captain of Manchester City and I wrote back saying dear Stephen great to hear from you blah 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 signed it at the bottom then I was reading the um, the, the Daily Express on, on the Saturday and uh, Fred Eyre puts a little thing in it he said I'd just like to say thanks to Paul Power you made my son's day mm. well about 15 20 years later I actually worked with Stephen Eyre who was a coach at Manchester City's Academy mm. and when we went on the Christmas party he brought the letter <laughs> unbelievable unbelievable so you know what it means to to certain people mm. and it as he as he was 35 then 36 maybe uh, but he still kept that letter mm. you know he he didn't tell he, he didn't tell me actually that most of them wrote to Spider-Man, <laughs> <laughs> so they never got a reply. But there you go, Brilliant. he made the right choice, maybe. Uh, so the other wee bit there, so right opposite that, we get Ray Clemens's column. Ray Clemens talking soccer, and again, uh, Ray's previewing the season ahead, and he says, "I rate Manchester City's challenge more highly." Uh, the Nottingham Forest and the main roadside had a disappointing season last time out, only only finishing fourth. But they have so much talent, and with the signing of Paul Fletcher from Luton, City must be in with a fine chance. And he goes on to mention Dave Watson and Mick Shannon as two of Man City's main men uh, that season. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they, we, they were all international players, you know. So I don't think Futch ever um, ever uh, made uh, got an international cap. I might be wrong. Uh, he'd have probably got maybe under 21s and younger age groups. Uh, but uh, he's another one who's unfortunately no longer with us. But um, yeah, he was, a, he was a good footballing centre-half. And um, like I say, pinged fantastic balls out to wide players. So Danny Stewart, Peter Barnes, uh, you know, would be receiving these passes while, they, while they're in plenty of space. Yeah, we just, we just didn't really hit it off up front. I mean, we, we had... Uh, I don't know whether Mick Shannon would have been with us that season. I can't quite remember, but uh, I think it was Mick Shannon and, and Brian Kidd who were the striking partnership. Mick was a great player and could run away. He was, he was a little bit like uh, the lad at Leicester, now Vardy. He'd run away from people because he was long striding and quick. But he, but he just didn't, for, for one reason or another, whether he, whether he, he was lacking confidence uh, because he, you know, he wasn't uh, scoring lots of goals. When he got through one on one with the keeper, he, he he didn't always convert. Whereas I played with Trevor Francis, and if you put him through, and he was one on one with the keeper, you would bet, like nine times out of ten, he would score. You know, uh, because that's just the sort of player he was. He knew exactly what he was going to do. Some play, I mean, they used to say about me because I made runs from deep. And I'd get in the box, but then they used to they used to call me Jigsaw because I fell to pieces, <laughs> fell to pieces in the box, like you know. But there you go. And uh, but yeah, so I think we uh, probably missed out. We had Asa Hartford and, and Gary Owen in the middle of the park, yeah. who weren't great goal scorers, not not abundant goal scorers anyway. You know, Dennis Stewart um, got probably more than the strikers playing wide on the right. Uh, Kiddo always came up with the goods, like you know. So uh, yeah, yeah. He, he, but but Mick uh, struggled a little bit that season, and I think that's possibly why we uh, we didn't do as well as we thought we would. What what, what was your thoughts on the goalkeeping situation for England at the time? So Clemens, Shelton, Corrigan, and F Phil Parks as well thrown in there. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he's always been a strong uh, position, hasn't it, for uh, England teams. Mm. I mean, even when Gordon Banks was... You couldn't imagine Gordon Banks ever ever being ousted from that position, you know. And and uh, there, there were great goalkeepers who had to play second fiddle to him for years. Um, and uh, it was pretty much the same. It, it was pretty much the same um, with Joe Corrigan, you know, because he had Shilton and Clements, who would always get in before him, like you know. But Joe was uh, a top top goalkeeper, you know. I mean, he he struggled a little bit early on in his career because he. He, he was prone to uh, carry a little bit of weight, mm. but when he he actually broke his jaw in training, it was Mike Doyle who uh, who uh, a freak accident, and he broke Joe's uh, jaw in training, and he he had to have his jaws wired up, Joe, and he mm. so he was on liquids, and and, he, and the weight just fell off him, and after that he never he never looked back, like you know. So uh, Doyle did him a favour there, I suppose. Mm. And Mike Doyle's another one who's no longer with us. So we keep mentioning these players, mm. you know, that, that have been great servants to the game and uh, passed away far too early. Absolutely. Hey, Andy, will I throw it over to you? Yeah. So what, what we'll do at the moment, Paul, is we'll, we'll jump out the magazine and we're going to do, I think you've done a few of these recently, but we're going to do a focus on, so... I'm just going to fire some questions at you. Um, we're, we're not going to compare them to any previous answers, so just give me your answers as they are now. Full name? Uh, Paul Christopher Power. Okay. Birthplace? But, uh, my birthplace was Openshaw in Manchester, but I spent most of my childhood in Withenshaw, Manchester, which is uh, the other side of the city. Okay. What was your first car? Uh, my first car I bought off Mike Doyle. It was a, a Morris 1300 and it spent more time in his garage than it did on the road. <laughs> Brilliant. Who, who's your favourite player? Um, my favourite player was, of all time was Colin Bell, but Neil Young played in the same team as Colin Bell and uh, he was a left winger, I was a left winger. Mm. Uh, I absolutely love Neil Young. Yeah. Okay. What What's your most memorable match? Oh, it, it'd have to be... Um, It'd have to be either the quarter-final of the FA Cup in uh, 1981 against Everton, the, the replay at, uh, at Main Road, or the semi-final against Ipswich at Villa Park. So uh, either of those. But um, I scored in both of them and, and we ended up uh, getting to the cup final that year. Yeah, I'm sure we'll touch on that after these questions, Tom. Yeah. You reckon? Yeah. yeah. What's been the biggest thrill of your life? Um. Probably being at the birth of uh, of my first child, you know, it was unbelievable. Uh, I was out with Julie's dad, and we I mean, we got a phone call that you know uh, the, the the birth was imminent. I w I walked into the delivery room, and the the, the baby was almost sort of uh, being delivered as I got there. So I missed all the gory hard work bits. <laughs> so it's not the best. <laughs> that, it looks pretty easy actually so oh no problem never say that, oh, never say that. what's been <laughs> the biggest disappointment um biggest disappointment was being relegated at man city you know the i, I just made reference to the um to the david pleat game against luton town when we uh we'd we'd pulled ourselves up by the socks really we'd we'd um We'd won, I think it was either Brighton or Portsmouth or somewhere on the south coast. Mm. And uh, we'd got ourselves in a situation where 
we only needed to draw the last game of the season. It was at home to Luton, who, uh, who, who was struggling as well. So we fancied our chances, but uh, unfortunately, we got beat 1-0 that game. And um, uh, yeah, the atmosphere around the dressing room and main road was uh, absolute disconsolation, you know. Okay. What's the best country that you've visited? Well, I, I live in France now. Uh, and we always, you know, like I said, I said we, we had a, a motorhome uh, for years and we used to drive to France uh, during the um, uh, during the holiday periods, like, you know, so we'd have like a month in France. Uh, always loved the Côte d'Azur, but could never afford to live there. So we now live in a place called the Languedoc, which is uh, a little bit cheaper, you know, but the sun shines just as brightly in the Languedoc. Although not at the moment, I've got to say... Uh, I'm stuck in Manchester right now. Um, but yeah, uh, but really, um, my favourite was it's possibly America. San Francisco was absolutely fantastic. But uh, we went to Rio mm. in Brazil and that was unbelievable. You know, I, I think that was my uh, favourite city in the world. Mm. Was that through football or was that through, with the family? No, that was with the family after, uh, after I'd, uh, I was working... Uh, at City's Academy, so I'd retired from playing. Mm -hmm. Excellent. What's your favourite food? Um, I've got very simple tastes in food, so but it would be a meat, so it might be uh, lamb or it might be cottage pie, but but you know, uh, something with plenty of gravy, really. That's me. <laughs> Brilliant. Miscellaneous likes, so just give us two things that you like doing. Um, well, I actually. I actually quite like reading now. In fact, you, you'll be quite impressed. I don't know whether yeah. you can see that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm reading that at the moment, but, uh, but that, that's quite funny. And I, I met him once after a game at uh, Man City, but um, he, 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 you know, we're just talking about people that will uh, sign an autograph or stand and have a chat with you. He was, was in, in a concert at Manchester and uh, we'd had a game and we ended up at the same club uh, in Manchester. And he came and spoke to my cousin who, you know, he's, he, my cousin said he'd, he'd listened to all his records and he said, I don't know what a chukter is. What's a chukter? So I said, well, go and ask him. And he went, no, no, I can't go and ask. Anyway, he went and asked him and he was away for about uh, 45 minutes <laughs> talking to Billy Connolly. He was absolutely made up like, you know, so uh, so that's an example of a, of a bloke who goes the extra mile a little bit like, yeah. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you my Billy Connolly st story, which I think you know, Tom. So the, the house, I, I'm from um, a place in Glasgow called Drumchapel. Uh, I, I live down near Leeds now, Dewsbury, Leeds in that way. But so the house I lived in for the first 12 years of my life, before it, Billy Connolly lived in the very same house. It was a tenement. So so he, he lived in there directly before we moved in. But there was, right. I think it was a South Bank show, and I think you can get it on YouTube. And I don't remember this happening, but my family talked about it, and eventually I saw the video. But Billy Connolly goes back to the house. Um, we'd moved out by then, and so did the other people after us, and it had been boarded up. But on the, on the front door, it was a big metal door, but the letterbox was still open. And so he went up and he couldn't get in, so he opened it up and looked. And he went, looks as though they still haven't 
change the the wallpaper. Wallpaper. <laughs> Apparently, my dad was was gone mental with them about that, you know. So, so that's my Billy Connolly story. That the I lived in the same house as him after him. So there we go. All right, nice one, nice one. Yeah. So, what was another another thing you like doing? Um, I like uh, walking my dog. So, you know, lots of opportunity to do that in France. You can either, uh, you know, I live about sort of 20 minutes from uh, uh, Narbonne Plage or Guissant Plage. Mm. So I can take the dog along there. Uh, not in season because, you know, uh, dogs are not allowed on the beach in the, uh, in the summer. But um, and also down the Canal de Midi, there are lots of lovely walks down there walk just walking through the vines mm. you know I, I just enjoy getting out and walking him every day like he's 11 now so uh he, he doesn't he doesn't tend to uh clear off quite so far as he mm. used to do and he don't walk as fast like so that suits me now it's like, I, I'll, I'll have a good walk myself I'm just i was out for a two-hour walk before this podcast so that's how much i like it it doesn't matter yeah <laughs> Okay, um, miscellaneous dislikes. So what, give me a couple of things that drive you up the wall. Um, well, I don't like uh, bad manners. The, good manners cost nothing. And to say please and thank you, you know, is, is not a great, uh, a great difficulty. So I, 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 don't like, I don't like rudeness or bad manners. Yeah. I don't like lateness. Uh, you know, if I, if I arrange to meet somebody, then... I like to be on time and I like them to be on time, you know. Uh, so just those two things. Uh, but not much upsets me, I've got to say. I'm quite I'm quite easygoing. I have to say, I absolutely agree with both of those. The second one in particular, I think that I always probably end up getting to places really early just to make sure that I'm not late. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in fact, that's probably why I don't like Jimmy Case because he was always late. <laughs> For the ball, always late for the ball. Yeah. Okay, yeah. what was your what's your favourite TV show? Um, I quite I quite like uh, travel shows now, and um, and cookery, you know, uh, related to cookery. So, you know, the uh, the, the three chefs, right? When they were travelling around France and Italy, mm -hmm. and uh, Gino Di Campo and. Um, and the other, the, the, your, your, Gordon your Scottish mate, yeah, yeah Gordon Ramsay, yeah, 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 <laughs> and Fred, uh, the, the, the French, uh, the French. I, I quite enjoy them, you know. I don't cook, yeah, but, uh, but I can appreciate the preparation that goes into certain foods, and uh, you know, it, it's always interested me. Mm -hmm. Okay, what about a couple of favourite singers? Um, nobody of uh, the present era, because mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not sort of a, a modern music but when I was sort of a, a young pro you know I used to love uh, Paul Simon, Carly Simon that sort of uh, country rock type mm -hmm. um, music yeah so I'd, 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 I'd still say even now you know if, uh, if, I, if, I, if I'm listening to the radio and a Paul Simon or a Carly Simon record comes on it it certainly catch my attention my missus keeps me up to date <laughs> with the more modern stuff like you know and she's 62, but she still listens to all that stuff. Yeah. So what about a couple of favourite actors? Um, again, present day, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really go, I wouldn't really go uh, mad, but Robert De Niro, mm. from all the Godfather era, you know, um, sort of those, 
maybe no, maybe Leonardo DiCaprio a little bit perhaps, but yeah, yeah, they'd all be from uh, maybe twenty years ago. Okay, who's been the biggest influence on you, whether it's personally or in your career? Um, I, I would say, if if I was going to write a book on my five best managers, mm. then Howard Kendall would be right up there, but. I think Gordon Taylor from the PFA, because I worked I worked for the PFA after I finished um, uh, coaching at Everton. So I worked I worked for the PFA for about uh, ten or twelve years, and Gordon Taylor is is vilified now because of all the Alzheimer's thing and the PFA haven't um, you know haven't really helped out. But but you know since he's been the head of the PFA. And they've had an accident fund. So if anything happens to me and I need hip replacements, knee replacements, I go to the PFA and I'd get some help with that financially. If I went to City or Everton, who I played for, I wouldn't. Mm. You know what I mean? So he, he, he's done an awful lot for players like non-contributive pension schemes. Mm. You know, all players are in a pension scheme. When they finish playing, uh, you know, they, they get a, a financial remuneration because of that. They won't get anything like that from the clubs that they played for, you know, uh, or the FA who's in charge of the game. So, you know, he's done an awful lot for for football generally and and for footballers. So, uh, you know, I would say he is the, the person who has influenced me mm -hmm. um, more than anybody in my life. Good answer. Okay, last question. Which person in the world would you most like to meet? Um... I'd, I'd, um, or have you already met him, Billy Conley, maybe? <laughs> no, no, no. I, would, I didn't understand him when I did meet him. So <laughs> um, maybe the Pope, I think, you know, just because maybe the Queen, you know, I, 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 when when we got to Wembley in 81, uh, the Queen Mother was the member of the royal family who uh, I had to introduce to the players. Um, but I'd like, you know, I'd like to meet the Queen and, and maybe... Uh, uh, go to book, book house and that, but uh, the Pope would be, you know, so because I'm a Catholic and he's the head of the church and everything. I, I'm not a practicing Catholic, by the way, but he, he would be. Uh, I'd be in awe of somebody like that. Okay, thank thanks for that. Oh, and Tom, you any? Yeah, well, I was going to a couple of wee things about your career. I was I was going to ask Paul. So in, uh, in this uh, season, um, seventy eight, seventy nine, Manchester City went on a wee European run. And uh, you had two games against AC Milan. So, and, and out in the San Siro, I think the evening, the game was postponed due to fog. And you played you played the match the following lunchtime. And uh, you scored a, t a terrific goal. I wonder if you can, what you can remember about, about that. Yeah, I I, uh, I remember it well, actually. I didn't score that many goals. So the ones I did score, <laughs> I remember. But um, you're dead right. Uh, we, we went out on the pitch on the Wednesday night and the fog was uh, sort of uh, covering, it wasn't on the ground, but it was covering the stand. And you could hear the noise of the, of the, of the, the home crowd and firecrackers and bangers and everything going off. It was quite intimidating yeah. to be fair. Anyway, then uh, the fog fell to ground level. So the referee called the game off and, uh, and we played it the next day. So, and the stadium wasn't full. I'm, I'm pretty sure the stadium wasn't full the next day because a, a lot of the people would have been at work. You know, it was a, 
it was a Thursday afternoon. Um, but there was still a bit of an intimidating atmosphere, but not as great as it was the night before. So that worked in our favour a little bit. I think Kiddo scored, Brian Kidd scored on the night as well. But I actually won the ball in front, at the edge of our own box yeah. and just carried on running with it. And every, like, you know, typical uh, Italian defenders, they all just dropped off, dropped off, dropped off till the edge of the box. Yeah. And it, it, it was, uh, it was Beresi, yeah. who, who was their left back. Uh, although he was only about 17 mm. at the time. I didn't even know about that until sort of after I'd finished my career. <laughs> I didn't know it was Beresi. And I, I just came, came inside onto my left foot and uh, I shot. And it was, uh, I think it was the goalkeeper was Albertozzi. Would that be right? Uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, he, he should have saved it. It was, a, it was another Perry Suppley <laughs> one, really. He, he should have saved it. But then, you know, he didn't. He went in. The um, later on in his career, he was he was actually uh, sort of prosecuted or or sort of uh, blamed for uh, accepting bribes, you know. So I think I think someone had bribed him that night as well, like you know, and uh, he, he let he let quite a simple shot in, but um, great result. We ended up drawing two two, and then and then we beat him uh, back at Main Road three one. I think yeah, it was. Yeah. But uh, they, they had a centre forward who went on to be president of the club. Terrible with names now. But Ken Barnes, who was Peter Barnes's dad mm. and, and worked at Man City, he said to me, I'll be astounded if he plays tonight. You know, and, and everybody was, uh, was a little bit concerned about this great Italian goal scorer. Like, you know, anyway, he's he dead right, he didn't play. Yeah. So uh, we ended up winning the game 3-1 and... Um, uh, we went through. I think we played Borussia Mönchengladbach in the ne in the next round. Yeah, and they had Bertie Volks and right. you know uh, a great Danish inside forward. Uh, Alan Simonson was it? Alan Simonson, he, he dead right. Yeah, and uh, you know they had a, they had a really good team. And in the end, we we drew at Main Road, I think, and we got beat three one at their place. So that was the end of the run. But but that was uh, quarter final. I think we got through right. to then. But we did. We had a good team. I think that was about the time that Malcolm Allison came to the club as well, and he, Mal, just loved athletes, you know, uh, and he loved young athletes. So Nicky Reed and Tommy Caton and Ray Ranson uh, got in the team ahead of Tommy Booth, Dave Watson, because Dana didn't play. Kiddo was on the bench, I think, um, you know. So. Uh, he came and, and changed the side round sort of unbelievably. And uh, I think that was possibly a mistake, you know, to, to make so many changes yeah. uh, from so many established players. But anyway, not to say that we would have beat them anyway, uh, because they were a good, uh, a good outfit. But I, I, I can't remember who went on to win the, the tournament that season. It might, it might have been uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Right. Other thing I was going to ask you about, Paul, what we touched on earlier on was the 81 Cup final. So for for me, that was the first, the replay was the first Cup final I saw live in television. Because obviously in Scotland, the Scottish Cup final and the FA Cup final happened simultaneously. And you always hoped the FA Cup final would go to a replay because you would get the replay live. So that, that, was, right, that, was, yeah. that was the first, uh, the first uh, FA Cup final I sat down and watched. And obviously it's been down as a, as a classic. But just... 
obviously the the Saturday there was the, the one all draw and the Saturday. First of all, I just wanted to ask you, what's it like leading your club out to the, the FA Cup final at Wembley in front of what a hundred thousand people? Oh, it's it's unbelievable because you you go out on the pitch, um, sort of an hour before the kick off. You know where all your family, you, where you've got tickets for them in the stadium. So, and my wife's uh, brother was a big Man United fan, you know, and he before before the Ipswich game, which we weren't expected to win, if the Ipswich were the top side at the time, like you know, and um, and he said to me, if you beat Ipswich in the semis, I'll I'll wear all blue at the, at the final, like you know, so. We went out on the pitch before the game and I looked up in the stand where the family were and sure enough, Billy was there with a big blue and white flag, blue shirt, blue jumper, blue trousers. And, uh, and then he put his foot up on the, on the hoardings and he had red socks on, like, you know, and he went, I couldn't do it, I couldn't do it. But, you know, that, that, that's great. Uh, you know, family can have a, a, bit, a bit of a laugh and everything. But, uh, yeah, yeah, the whole... The whole lead up to the to the cup final, you know, things like we went on a question of sport, Manchester City against Spurs on a question of sport, and you know there were loads of things that were happening leading leading up to the cup final because generally the uh, the football season's finished by then, yeah. and um, it's, it's just a, a fantastic occasion when driving up Wembley Way and all the City fans are, you know, they've got the flags out and. It's just a, a tremendous, tremendous occasion, yeah. yeah. And to lead the team out, you know, having supported them as a kid uh, was was a, a sort of a dream come true, really. In fact, I might have even mentioned that where you said, uh, you know, I'll forget Julian having the baby. I'll <laughs> lead his city out at Wembley. It would have been better to lift the trophy, I've got to yeah, say. But yeah. as Peter Swale said at the dinner, better to have been there and lost than not to have been there at all. And I... I believe that as well. Yeah. So in that game, Tommy Hutchinson scored a cracking diving header, and then he scores. He scores the the own goal. It spin ball spins off his shoulder and flies out of the net. You know the story to that is, we we knew Glenn Hoddle was was always a, a problem from free kicks just outside the box. Yeah. So we got big people in the wall, and uh, and then Tommy was um, was at the side of the wall, and then. He actually said in the in the training sessions leading up to the final, if I drop uh, behind the wall, and then if he hits the bar or the post, I'll I'll be first to get the rebound. Like you know, Joe Corrigan said, "Look, leave it. Stay where you are. Cover cover that you know the the far side of the goal." He said, "If if uh, if Glenn Hoddle can get the ball up and over the wall and in." into my the top corner and I can't save it then full marks to him like yeah. you know but stay where you are anyway Tommy decided like uh, that he was right and uh, and he dropped behind the wall and that's when it hit him on the shoulder and of course Joe had committed himself to the first strike yeah. and then when it deflected in the other side of the goal he couldn't do anything about it and Tommy looked at Joe and just looked at the floor you know, he knew that uh, that he shouldn't have done what he did, but you know, yeah. you, it's it's all part and parcel of the game. You you do what you consider right at the time, yeah. and uh, it was just unfortunate the consequences. Yeah. But in the replay, Steve McKenzie scored the best goal, and everybody, everybody forgets it. Wembley. 
fantastic volley from the end, and nobody ever remembers it because of Ricky Villa's yeah. goal, like you know. But yeah, that that was just because we we played extra time in the first game, and we finished much much stronger than them. They were they were falling all over the place, like you know, with the Wembley cramps and everything. We finished like we had a good young athletic side. Nicky Reed and Tommy Kent were bombing forward, and uh, you know. We 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 finished much stronger than they did. If the if the game if that game had been gone to a conclusion, the next goal, for instance, we'd have won that. But I think the second game, we just given too much because we were more of a physical side than they were. They were a skillful side, and I think it played into their hands a little bit in the second game. Even though, you know, we went two one up in that game as well. Kevin Reeves scored a penalty, I think, didn't he? And uh, yeah. And then Macca's goal, and then, uh, of course, uh, Ricky Villa's goal. When really we should have dealt with him at, before he got in the box. Mm-hmm. Once once he he dribbled in the box, you know people were frightened to tackle him, and uh, he ended up you know slotting it past Big Joe. But yeah, yeah, disappointing that uh, because we we felt we were good enough to win the game. There was there was a, there was a couple of things I noticed about watching that game again. First was Steve McKenzie's goal was. As you say, it was absolutely out of this world. It was mm-hmm. not a strike that if you saw it nowadays, you'd it'd be getting replay after replay after replay. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I like to do sometimes is look at games from back then and think about how they would be refereed today. Because there was there was a, some incidents. I think the Spurs keeper handled outside the box and didn't, right. didn't he, he came out and punched it, and it was a free kick. He didn't even get booked. And then there was a there was another bit. I think it was Jerry Gow went into a challenge with Ozzy Ardelis, and you think that could have been a straight red these days. I, yeah, yeah. There was another. I, I don't know. Can't remember who it was. Maybe Tommy Caton. Um, it was a the ball hit his hand in the penalty area, but right, like it was sort of. He, he didn't know anything about it, but you just think nowadays that would be a penalty with the rules. Yeah. Well, it would certainly would. It, it, it certainly would have been if VAR had been around in those days, because they never give Man City any decisions. So it would have probably ended up ended up five two. Yeah. <laughs> now, but um, yeah, I think some of the tackles in those days. When I when I look back at games now, you know, I mean, one that comes to mind is uh, at Leeds against Chelsea, yeah. and Eddie Gray. Eddie Gray got absolutely mullered by. Um, the right back uh, at Chelsea, Chopper Harris, like mm. he absolutely, he'd, he'd have been sent off. There was ab- no doubt about that. Graham Souness, who played for Liverpool, oh, oh, I'm sure his his philosophy was uh, get your retaliation in first because he used to just lay into people in the first two or three minutes because he knew that the referee wouldn't send him off then, like you yeah. know and. Uh, you know, certain players got away with murder and sort of manipulated the rules a little bit. To be fair, mm. but um, no, no, I would. I, I think uh, I think the two games against Spurs were were worthy of the hundredth cup final, yeah. which mm. it was that year. You know, so uh, I think uh, they were both good games. Yeah. So, and if we jump back in the, the magazine, Andy, um, so if, if we just go have a, a brief look, pages sixteen and seventeen talking about why fans have to pay more to watch soccer and it's just a wee bit about how the gate money has gone up over 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 the years and, and if you if you look if you, if you look at the, the prices there and obviously this article is talking about the sort of way that the money's the the money's doubled 
to get into a into a football match then, but um it's really nothing compared to compared to what it is what it is these days to get into a game. So if you look at that, you've got starts off at nineteen nineteen, minimum admission charge raised from six shillings, two and a half pence to one shilling five pence, and then it goes to nineteen fifty five, it's two shillings ten pence, then sixty five a decade later is doubled to four shillings twenty pence. And uh, 1972 is up to 40p, 75, 65 pence, 77, 80 pence, and 78. 1978 is up to £1 to get into the match. <laughs> yeah, but all affordable. All affordable by anybody. Mm. You know what I mean? If you were a working class bloke, you could afford to go to a football match. I'm not sure that's the case uh, these days. Yeah. I think I think in the article, what they mention is that... It, that is, you know, cheap compared to some of the other forms of entertainment. That yeah, yeah, go. yeah. Going to the theatre, for instance, it, you know, uh, it would be a lot more uh, expensive to watch a Broadway show or something. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of players went to Italy, didn't they? Uh, like Gary Lineker and and Gaza and Graeme Souness, they went over to Italy because there was more money there, you know. Uh, but I think. I've got I've got programs uh, in in my in my locker at home that were I, when I went to watch City they were a shilling, yes. you know it was a shilling for a program and uh, I'm probably giving my age away yes. there but even even Wembley programs were uh, were cheap later on when when I got there playing for Wembley uh, sorry playing for Everton um, it was like you know um, ten quid for a program. You know, you you don't even have to pay that to get in to watch the game uh, during a lot, a lot of the eras, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it is. But, you see, there's so much money in football now that they don't even need to charge people mm. to go in and watch because the clubs make so much money from Sky TV and yeah. all the other, uh, you know. Yeah, and in and, and those yeah. days, I guess, the greatest income was from the fans at the time but like you say nowadays money's coming from all over, all over the place for sponsorship deals yeah, yeah. TV etc so yeah I worked when I was at the PFA I worked with uh, Jimmy Jimmy Armfield yeah. who was part of the 1966 World Cup winning squad yeah. even though he didn't play uh, but he said when he played he used to get if the if the game appeared on television which Blackpool did quite often then because they were a top team he'd get an extra £25 in his wages you know then the BBC started to uh, invest more into football and the PFA said, well, you know, we want 10%. I think it might have been Cliff Lloyd then, although it, it might have been uh, Gordon. Uh, we want 10% of any uh, uh, deal because we're going to set up an accident fund and uh, uh, a sort of a, an af after-career development fund, you know what I mean? So uh, like an employment fund, if you like, so that players, when they finish at 35, can retrain to do something else. Uh, so anyway, they, they, they ended up getting this 10%. Then the money went abstra absolutely ast astronomical and the clubs said, well, if you get 10%, you know, you'll be getting more than the blinking clubs. So Gordon took cut it down to about 2% or whatever. It, I, I don't know the exact figures, but the PFA still got a considerable amount of money to the point where I was at a meeting and... Uh, and uh, Scudamore was uh, was addressing um, academy directors, uh, and he he said, "There's only three 
um, groups that are important in football, and that's uh, the FA, the Premier League, and the Football League. And I just put my hand up and I, I said, don't you think there's one you've missed out there? Meaning the PFA. And it, I might have even said the, manager, the, the Football Managers Association as well. But he said, I know your background, Paul. He said, uh, all I do for Gordon Taylor uh, is write him a cheque for 26 million quid every year, you know, which is an astronomical amount of money uh, that they pay uh, to the players' union. So you can imagine how much all the clubs are getting. Yeah. Uh, they really don't need to uh, to charge supporters yeah. to go in there at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and players' wages have just gone yeah. through the roof, really. You know, which I... Hey, I used to love Neil Young, like I said. Neil Young, at the end of his career, uh, became a milkman. I've not had to do that. And I wasn't as good a player as him. Yeah. And and players, now, Phil Foden now, uh, who is an outstanding player and much better player than I was. But, you know, by the time he's 21, he might not even have to worry about yeah. a pension in the future, you know, because he'll be, he'll be made for life. I sometimes think that some players get too much too early yeah. you know but that's the state of the game and that's yeah. how much money there is around with sponsorship coming from the middle east and everything else it's a it's an unbelievable lifestyle now for uh, for players mm. i bet there aren't many that, that drive a, a morris 1300 <laughs> as, as the first car mm, okay. <laughs> so before we look at the manchester city pages could we just quickly go over the page and have a look at this uh, brian clough there's two pages on Brian Clough, controversial Clough, because uh, obviously Forrest had recently won the league, the, the league title, uh, and there's a few wee, a few wee, a few wee quotes there uh, about him and from him. Uh, we one there from Bob Stokel. He says Clough thinks he knows it all, but really is a frightened man. He has so much success as a manager that he's afraid he won't be able to keep it up. And uh, a wee bit from Alan Ball. Brian Clough is the sort of manager who has to dominate his players. If I ever joined him, he would have tried to dominate me. But despite his record, I would not have the respect for him to let him do it. He knows how I feel about him, and he's never made any secret of the fact he's not too struck on me either. D did you have any run-ins with Brian Clough over your career, Paul? No, uh, I never had a run-in with him. But when I was um, when I was coaching at Everton, and I, I played I played for the reserves in a game, and um, one of the one of the forest players he he was at the reserve team game by the way sitting on the bench and it, and this incident happened right in front of the bench uh, the uh, the forest player uh, and not the ball past him and he's like leathered me really you know and then i just i just got to put the ball down and took a quick free kick and uh, he walked onto the pitch uh, cluffy and he went hey son wonderful wonderful that you could have got him booked and you got on with the game and that was uh, that was all that was all I, I I ever spoke to him like you know. Right. But I did my full badge, a coaching badge at Lillishaw, and um, the right back that played for uh, Cluffy's successful side, he he uh, he told us a story, you know, because after after the, being in on the field all day, we used to go in the bar at Lillishaw, have a few drinks, and he said they got. They got through to the uh, final of the League Cup at, at Forest, and um, they, they, none of the players had anything written in the contract about how much they get for for getting to the final of the League Cup. You know, so uh, they all had a meeting, and they went into the manager and said, uh, "There's nothing in the contract, but this is what we want." You know, 
so it might have been about two and a half thousand quid or something you know for getting to Wembley then and uh, he came in on the Monday morning with 20 boxes of chocolate <laughs> with with a 10 pound note tape to the top and he said here that's your bonus for getting to the League Cup final now take it home to your wife and give her a nice present like you know but that's that's how that's how stubborn he was you know and he didn't care it sounds if he didn't care about players that much like you know yeah. but um yeah yeah but he, i mean his son is is having a fantastic career in management as well nigel isn't yeah. he so uh, uh good to see the club name carrying on in uh, uh but he never came to try and buy me so uh uh but he, he, I, I'm, I, I would have been a walkover to him. I wouldn't have been like Bowley at all. Like you know, I'd have, I'd have taken the chocolates home to the missus. Like I might have taken the tenner off the top though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if we go to page twenty-seven, then so this is this is the pages on on Manchester City club spotlight. So well, there we go. There's your so f- first of all, uh, so five years of glory. So this this page is a wee a wee bit of a look, um, a brief look at the history of Manchester City, and there's uh, Billy Meredith there and uh, Frank Swift, and uh, a photograph of the Man City players celebrating with the 1970 FA Cup. Yeah, that was the team that I used to watch with the uh, Tony Book, the skipper, and Colin Bell, and uh, Mike Summerby, Franny Lee. Who you know? When I started my career, I was late starting my career because I I went to university to study law. So, yeah. I mean, even this this shoot magazine uh, is in 1978. I was 23 then. No, I wasn't. I was 25. Sorry, in in 78. But uh, I'd been at university since I was uh, up to being 21. So I'd not been a pro for that long, really. And uh, uh, so a lot of these players that. Uh, that are in that picture there, Franny Lee and Belly and all them, Neil Young, you know, they were my heroes when I used to watch City Light. So if we, if we go over the page into the, the team group, so Paul, this is this is you, this is this is you and your your pomp uh, with the Manchester City team. So if you maybe want to take us through some of the some of the players in that squad. Well, I tell you, I, I, the first thing that strikes me is the number of local lads that are in this team. So top left is Roger Palmer. Futch, they, they, they bought from uh, Luton. Tommy Booth played, got 600 games. Joe Corrigan, the same for Man City. Kenny Clements, a lad from Oldham. Uh, Belly, they bought from Berry, but, but pretty local anyway. Uh, then Tony Book, then this middle row is Gary Buckley, who was, uh, his, his brother Mick Buckley actually played for Everton. And uh, uh, he was a, a young player from sort of Wooden Shore, where I was from. Then Tony Henry came from the northeast. Willie Donachie, obviously from Scotland, but but both of those were there at City as uh, as juniors. Uh, Ray Ranson the same, and a lad called Russell Coughlin, who was a Welsh lad, uh, but but had been brought up at City as a from a, a youth age. Gary Owen, Peter Barnes, uh, both sort of local to the area. Uh, Kiddo who was much travelled with Man United, Arsenal and but uh, and Everton, but he came, uh, you know, he, he actually came from Manchester. Dave Watson was from uh, Nottingham, I think, uh, but he came from Sunderland. Asa Hartford, Scotland. Uh, Mick Shannon from uh, Southampton, down south. Jed Keegan was uh, a lad from Sale. So the number, 
the number of players on that team sheet that were from the Manchester area, we actually played in 1976 a semi-final of the League Cup. Uh, do you remember Dennis Stewart's overhead yeah, kicking yeah, yeah. final against Newcastle? We played the semi-final against uh, Middlesbrough when Graeme Souness was playing for them. And they had a good side, Stuart Bowman, people like that. And uh, there were 10 out of the 11. I think there was only Asa Hartford uh, who, uh, who wasn't from Manchester, you know. So how times change, it's, it's, it's quite unbelievable, really. Yeah. But great, like I say, the, the backbone of the team, you know, you'd have uh, Joe Corrigan, Dave Watson, uh, Asa Hartford, uh, in the middle of the park, uh, and then um, you know Kiddo and, and Mick Shannon up front. Then you you know, but you had great wide players as well, like uh, Peter Barnes. Nice. You know, Dennis Stewart was in the side as well, uh, playing wide on the right. And so, yeah, we had a, a, a good balance, a good balance of a team, really. Asa Hartford and uh, Kenny Clements they are both sporting the hairstyle of the period, which was a perm. Yeah, yeah. Kiddo, Kiddo's got a bit of a perm going on there as well, like, you know, on the front row. I've saw that there was there's a photograph I have of him at Arsenal and it, it shows you him sort of from behind, but he's looking behind and I've never seen anybody with more hair in my life. It's Yeah, yeah. Ever. His, his philosophy was, you know, uh, he always used to say, if you've got a chance to shoot and you don't shoot, then, you know, you're stupid. Mm. He, he always used to say, if you don't buy a raffle ticket, you won't win a prize. That was his, uh, mm. that was a saying that I always remember from, and it was a saying that I used in coaching, mm. you know, when I was coaching the likes of Graham Sharp and Inchi and all them, I used to say to him, hey, if you don't buy a raffle ticket, you won't win a prize, as if it was my saying, like, you know, so. Which I'm guessing you, you, you took to heart in the Ipswich game, in the semi-final, when the free kick. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you uh, a story about that as well, is that that was in extra time. It was the 100th minute of the game uh, when we got the free kick on the edge of the box. Dave, uh, Dave Bennett, who's, who's on, that, uh, yeah, the uh, on the photograph there, standing next to Bill Taylor on the back row, next to Colin Bell. Um, and he, uh, he got fouled by BT, I think it was. And uh, the, the free kick was, Steve McKenzie was on the ball, he'd knock it to me. I'd let it go through my leg to Tommy Caton, who'd uh, who'd go and strike it with his sweet left peg, like you know. And uh, anyway, as we're walking off at the end of the game, I think it was um, the little uh, Eric Gates said to me, he was walking off with his boots under his arm, and I said, "I think you'll find out there's half an hour <laughs> extra time to play." And he went, and he said, "Well, if 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 that's right, you can have it." And I thought, well, I hope I hope all your mates think the <laughs> same way, like you know. Anyway, I, I think it was Eric Gates who was supposed to close the ball down at the end of the wall. You know, you always had a player on the edge of the wall who came and closed the ball. And then uh, I would knock it on for, um, for Tommy Caton to strike it. Nobody came off the end of the wall. So I just thought, a kiddo, really. You know, it was, uh, if I don't buy a raffle ticket here. Yeah. And the goalkeeper wasn't that big, uh, Cooper. You know, he, he wasn't the biggest goalkeeper in the world. Good shot stopper. But I thought, well, I'll in for a penny, in for a pound, like so. Probably the best decision I ever made in my life, to be fair. I'm, I'm sensing a theme here, Paul, and that's three goals that you've scored that you've talked about, 
and you blame the goalkeeper on every single one of them. You should maybe take some credit. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but um, I, I didn't score that many. You know what yeah. I mean? So, so when I did, it's probably the goalkeeper's fault anyway. <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. It's the. I mean, looking at the photograph, it's, it's a brilliant team photograph. Brilliant classic Umbro diamonds kit. It's. Um, I, I. I mean that for me. Kit wise, those were the the best kits for me. Was um, those Umbro diamonds and the Admiral kits? Maybe a bit. Early. Yeah. Well, we we had um, a, a director of the football club uh, who who was a director in the days of Peter Swales uh, called Mister Humphreys, and he had he had like two or three brothers, and they owned it's Umbro's oh, yeah. Bro. It means brothers and. So Umbro's, you know, they had their uh, factory in Wilmslow. Uh, so, you know, it was inevitable that we would uh, wear the Umbro kit until Franny Lee took over as uh, uh, as chairman. He set a deal up with uh, Kappa. We wore Kappa sportswear for it, but it was a it was a darker blue. It wasn't the, the nice light blue that you that you associate with uh, with Man City, like you know. So, um, yeah, and then. Everything changed after that, really. You know the, uh, but I I associate uh, sort of sky blue Manchester City colours always. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess we just if we just go over uh, over the page there. There's just a few wee pen pictures of uh, of the some of the players that we've been we've been talking about, and uh, a few wee a few wee snaps there. Uh, Peter Barnes, and there's a wee picture there of the away the away strip of that era there with a white white shirt with that red and black. Yeah, I love that Gosh. kit. I love that kit. Yeah, I think that might have been one uh, introduced by Malcolm Allison because Crystal Palace, I think they used to uh, play in a, a similar kit. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I I love that kit, and I, you know, I thought it was a really smart um, smart outfit. Yeah, Crystal Palace. Are, when I talk about kits and some of them, my favourite kits, Crystal Palace. Are up there for quite a few of their kits were absolutely brilliant. They had a, a sort of blue and burgundy stripe one as well, which was really good. Yeah, yeah. That that's another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant times. Great. Uh, I mean, Peter Barnes was, you know, different players had different attributes, obviously. But you know, Dennis Stewart was a winger that would frighten fullbacks. You know what I mean? He. Fullbacks were frightened to death of him when they had the ball. Barnsley wasn't like that, you know. He wasn't aggressive, and when when he used to play against Jimmy Case and Tommy Smith, and he was almost frightened to death until he got the ball at his feet, and then, mm-hmm. you know, he had a he had a games playing intelligence that perhaps not a, an academic intelligence. Mm-hmm. I had an academic intelligence, but I wish I'd have had his games playing intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So. Uh, everybody had the strengths and weaknesses, and um, but it's finding the right blend. When when I worked on this coaches association, uh, when I was at the PFA, uh, Dave Sexton was working in a, a little working group that we had, and he always said, "It's no good having all artists in your football team. You've got to have a mixture of artists and soldiers. The soldiers win it, give it to the artists. So your Nobby Styles gives it to your Bobby Charlton." And then, you know, the team, like, I'd be one of the soldiers. I'd give it to Trevor Francis. He'd go and score a goal. So I get bonus money for that. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't bothered whether Trevor Francis was going to go and close down fullbacks. 
Trevor Francis wouldn't play in today's game, certainly not in Liverpool's team, mm. uh, where they're expected to press from the front. But I'd put up with whatever shortcomings he had because I knew that he would win me bonus money every other week, like you know. So, uh, so you, you tolerate deficiencies, and you just appreciate what the, what they were what they were actually good at, like you know. So, well, you, you, sometimes yeah. you hear that um, even today, where sometimes people criticise strikers and they say, well, all they do is score goals. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, you, you'll put up with that. If all they're doing is scoring goals, they're doing their job and then you build the team around them so that all they have to do is score goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What what I don't agree with is that they get bonuses for scoring goals. Mm-hmm. You know, I think scoring goals is a team effort. You know, sort of, I look at David Silva for Manchester City and he must have created... God knows how many, uh, and De, De, uh, De Bruyne is the same now, yeah. creates chances for fun, and then somebody else might get the bonus money for sticking it in the net, you know. Yeah. But I don't agree with that, but that's something possibly that agents have brought into the game when they're, when they're representing their striker players, like, you know. But no, I, do, I, I, I think it's a team game, and that's the way it should be. And that's why teams like Liverpool, Man City, are having the success that they're having at the moment because they're all in it together. You can see that, you know. When I watch, I watch the game that we played against uh, Spurs at Wembley, and the game is so stretched, it's unbelievable. When you watch the games now, everything is congested into probably between 30 and 40, 40 yards between uh, the, the, the defenders and the front players. Win the ball high up the pitch, all go together. You know, there's no room to play, and and you can only play out by by having clever players. You know, and playing one touch football. The game is totally different nowadays, but an absolute joy to watch. Uh, all right then, I know we've hit sort of just over the two hour mark. Is there anything else in the magazine, uh, Andy, that you, you spotted or, or or Paul that you that you um, saw that you maybe wanted to touch on? No, not really. They, um, you know, if I was going to talk about. Uh, people that I played against directly, I've already mentioned Franz Carr, who was who was an absolute flying machine. Yeah. But I was quite quick as well. So, but I wasn't as quick as him. So if he knocked it past me and then got the crossing, I knew full well that Nigel Clough wouldn't be in the box because he couldn't run that fast either. Like you know <laughs> what I mean? So so he'd be crossing into a into an empty box. Jimmy Case I mentioned was a was a hard player to play against. I've not mentioned. Pat Nevin, who was not quick and would never run away from you, but he'd beat he'd beat you uh, by turning away from you, having quick feet, uh, and then he'd, he'd run with the ball in, inside. You know, he was uh, he sort of he'd run inside with most wingers would would uh, go on to the right. Most right wingers would go on to the right foot and cross it for the striker. Uh, Pat used to run inside and then slide it in for um, Kerry Dixon or, you know, whoever, whoever was making the run to score the goal. So he was a different one to, to deal with. And, but probably my most difficult opponent of that era would be Steve Coppel, who features on, I think, the front, the front page of the, uh, uh, of the magazine. Steve Coppel was uh, dead honest. You know, he, he had ability to beat you and get a crossing. But I knew if I ran past uh, Steve Coppel with the ball, I knew that he would chase me until he won it back. Mm. You know, there are some players that if you run past them, 
he gave up. Yeah. Uh, but he he was so honest that he would uh, always give, you know, hundred percent defensively and uh, and attacking as well. And you know, had ability to come inside and uh, and score spectacular goals from the edge of the box. So I think over overall, uh, he would have probably been the the most difficult opponent that I played against. So Tom, I, I don't think we can we can miss the opportunity to oh. mention. So something we did in December, Paul, was it's called the Scottish Footballer Lookalikes World Cup. So what we did was um, we created a, a bunch of footballer lookalikes with, you know, a famous lookalike. And you featured in it. So so you featured in a World Cup. So what I'm going to, I'm going to show you, you actually made the final. So I'm... Oh, really? I wish I wish I had I wish I had have uh, featured in a World Cup final. But there you go. Well, let me see if I can share with you the the. Well, firstly, I'm going to share with you the the semi finalists. Right. So so this, <laughs> this was um, the semi the second semi final. So we have Bertie Miller of East Fife as a lookalike for Robert De Niro, who you mentioned earlier on. And yeah, sure. Peter McQuaid also of East Fife, and I don't know if you're aware of the Scottish comedian Kevin Bridges. Uh, I, I do, I know the, uh, I know the face, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so we first did this World Cup in 2017, and this was the final, these two, and um, Robert De Niro and Bertie Miller won the, fin um, won the final. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at the other semi-final, and can you see that? <laughs> yeah, but I don't know who it is. Yeah, I, I, I suspected maybe, you wouldn't, Ben Stiller. So he he was in like a Zoolander, but this yeah 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 I know I know Ben Stiller yeah 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 I think this is from Dodgeball, so um so we we give you an international wild card invitation. Oh, that'll do that'll do for me. And the other the other you were up against uh, Andy Anderson of Partick Thistle, and uh, you aware of the, the that touched up fresco where it was a, was it a Spanish an old Spanish woman went and tried to touch up a this painting of. I can't remember who it was. It was a painting, but th this is what it turned out to be. So, <laughs> so Andy Anderson and that touched up Fresco. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the semi. So you went on to meet. I should think so. I should think so. Yeah. I, I deserve to beat him then as well. But yeah. So you went on to meet Peter McQuaid and Kevin Bridges in the final. And unfortunately... The final went against you, but to get to the final was an absolutely cracking. Oh, well, there you go. That there you go. I, I, see, that's the story of my life: is to get to the final <laughs> and then get beat. So uh, you know, maybe uh, I've still got time left in me to go to go on and win a final somewhere. We'll see. But really good, uh, nice one. I think it's the eyes with Ben Stiller, isn't it? I think. Uh, <laughs> They're a bit, they're a bit beady, the same as mine. Yeah. It, it, it was a very popular, um, popular choice. Um, there, there was a lot of people rooting for you, but I think there was just a, a bigger following for. Yeah, too, too much for me. That too much of a likeness, really, below. So, so we, we did that. We did, as I say, we did that um, throughout December, and it was for, you know, we tried to raise money for a charity partner, which we do on the podcast. Um, which is called the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share. Um, so I'm just going to read out a little bit here um, about them. So this charitable organisation provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. 
school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community and supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them any way we can throughout the, through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money, support in the form of volunteers and we'll also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit are aware that these vital services actually are out there. You can follow them on the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share Group on Facebook or westernbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. But you can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity at justgiving.com slash fundraising slash shoot the breeze. And also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts shoot tb underscore podcast and Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our partner. So that that's something we, we try and do as well is to raise awareness and do some fundings um, and get some donations for for brilliant, brilliant. It sounds sounds similar to sort of in a in, in a lesser degree than that Marcus Rashford's uh, involved with, like you know, with uh, great, great, wonderful, excellent. So should we, Tom? You want to? I don't know. We're just going to wrap up. Paul, I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming. I appreciate you coming along and giving up a couple of hours of your evening to come and come and speak to us. Yeah. Listen, it's easy when you're locked down, like yeah. I am. You know what I mean? I, I could have I could have gone on for four hours really because I'm not I'm not doing much else. So, so what? Well, well, say, Paul. Is it, so as I say, I, I collect magazines. These are two duplicates of the one that we spoke through. So what we'll do is I'll if if it's okay, I'll get your address of Tom as if Tom um, got email or something and whenever I come through some stuff that's got any articles on yourself I'll, I'll just pop them in a post to you if if that's okay yeah yeah no problem no problem um, like I said I, I do also have a card to you as well yeah. right yeah yeah the very um, is that Ben Stiller was that Ben Stiller uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so so we'd like to say a special thanks to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of Story of the Blues and the music for our show. And you can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk. Uh, we'd also like to give a, a shout out to the terrific What Happened to You podcast, which you've been on, hosted by Mark, Mark Godfrey. And you can follow them on Twitter at WHTYpod and subscribe to the podcast where they put all focus on questions from magazines to the players and see how their answers fare these days. And lastly, we'd also like to thank our producer, Diane Jarden, for her great work and support as always. Uh, please check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clybank. So before we go, just what, what's what's happening with yourself at the moment? Are you going to get back home tomorrow or are you going to be stuck in the, the UK for now? Yeah, no, no, we, we, we're actually going back on uh, uh, Sunday. Mm, right. um, only because... It's easier to drive. Uh, a lot of lorries are off the motorway on uh, mm. uh, on Sundays uh, abroad, like in France and, and Spain. Um, so we're going back on Sunday, but I've got to get a, a COVID test. Myself and Julie have got to be uh, tested um, 72 hours before we uh, get the tunnel train. Yeah. And also I've got to sort the dog out. Um, so he's he's got to have... Uh, a new set of papers. His old sort of uh, passport isn't uh, isn't um, relevant anymore after Brexit. Yeah. So, yeah, all changed really. Yeah. So, what, what's what are you what are you doing over in front? You 
are you involved with any organisations or any charities that yourself? Uh, no, no, not at all. I, I, I just um, we just have a, a house which I, which I bought, which has a, a jeep next to it. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, we used to rent the jeep out uh, to people during the summer. Um, now we tend uh, it tends to go to friends and family yeah. um, pretty much during the summer, you know. And uh, um, but it's great to see lots of people uh come over but obviously last summer was uh was difficult because um yeah because of the situation in england and in france it's just as uh it's just as awkward there mm-hmm. so yeah i don't really support uh, a charity as such you know if if friends come along and, and do something like there were there was a group of cyclists who uh cycled past our house uh and they were raising money uh cycling from uh, Barcelona to Manchester mm-hmm. so you know uh, we, we sort of get involved in little things mm-hmm. um, over the years but 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 nothing specific okay listen uh, again just a big thank you for for doing this it's, it's been great um really enjoyed it and you know there was a lot more in there we could have kept talking for hours I guess but um well, I guess we've all got to get some sleep <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure and um Tom. Yeah, no, it's been it's been absolutely uh, brilliant, Paul. I really appreciate you taking the taking the time. And uh, maybe maybe if if we do it again we'll look at an, an Everton yeah. uh you know. We never we never really spoke about your, your time at Everton too much. No, that's, that's, of... that's okay. I, I've enjoyed uh, looking back and especially you know, uh, this week because Colin Bell passed away, he was like one of my heroes, yeah. uh, an absolute gentleman, uh, never swore, never ever swore. He, the worst he, he would swear was Ruddy, you Ruddy this and you Ruddy that. And uh, he was uh, so respectful of uh, people around him, like, you know, mm. Nijinsky, we used to call him because he could run forever. Mm. Uh, top, top bloke. Brilliant. Okay, so again, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast. And what we do as well, Paul, is we, we haven't, when we release a podcast, we have a, a web page as well where we, we share all the, the, the scans and images from the magazine so people can follow along while they listen to this as well. And, you know, if, like I said, we'll include videos of your goals and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll write up how great they were and the goalkeepers really made a valiant effort yeah yeah you'll see for yourself i'm telling the truth (laughs) again thank you and thank you tom for being tom thanks andy and again thank you for listening until the next time let's shoot the breeze